Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Each week, I'm joined by my co-host, Red, and some of the best product managers in the business. Together, we're having candid conversations that help you understand the challenges that a product manager faces, how they overcome them, and the tools and frameworks that will help you thrive in the role. So let's start the show. Thanks for joining us, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman, and I am a professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business, where I have started with the help of an amazing group of product managers, the Product Management Center. The Product Management Center is building a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. And part of us doing that is being here every week with some of the brightest minds in product management and making them available for questions and sharing their expertise with all of you uh, here on LinkedIn on Tuesdays and also for everybody at home on a podcast uh, to enjoy whenever you want. So we're here today. This is the first of the year. Might just be me. Uh, Maybe Sumeya will join us. We'll see. But we have a fantastic guest. I'm really excited that Darlene Miranda is here. Darlene, can we just kick off the conversation by having you tell everybody just a little bit about yourself and your journey in product management. Yeah, and thanks so much for having me. I often go by Dar, so if you want to refer to me as that, that's great too, in case you see my name in both ways. So I'm Dar Miranda. I'm the VP and General Manager at Daily Pay, leading our enterprise product. Now, if you know anything about Daily Pay, you know that we are on a mission to change pay for good. And it's really a very simple concept. You know, we believe that people should have access to their pay as they earn it. So we are a mission-driven company. And I lead the enterprise side of our product, which means the side of our product, which has a relationship with an employer, and then we work with the employer to bring this to their employees. Now, I started in product management before it was called product management. And I'm dating myself a little bit, but you know, back in the early days, it was really this mix of digital slash marketing slash project management. We didn't even really have a name for it, but I absolutely loved the intersection between business technology and the user. For me, that was always very, very exciting. And I've just built a career in helping companies to connect those dots. And I've worked at a number of different companies ranging from large, such as American Express, to smaller startups, primarily in the fintech space. But I've also touched on a a couple of other industries as well, always in a a product role, ranging in B2C and B2B, and more recently, B2B2C. There's all sorts of variations and all the Bs and all the Cs there, but it's been a fun journey so far. All right. Thanks for that intro and thanks for being here today. You go by Dar and you have Darlene written in your LinkedIn profile. I go by Jeff and I have Jeffrey in my LinkedIn profile. So we're going to keep score as to whether I call you Darlene more than you call me Jeffrey or vice versa. But so thanks for being here. We are going to talk about making customer obsession a cross-functional practice. And we're going to have an opportunity for everybody in the audience in about 15, 20 minutes. If you have a question that you want to get answered, you'll be able to come up on stage and, and ask it for Dar here today. But first, we need to know what is customer obsession and then why is customer obsession? And maybe we could break that up into two parts. So just start with when you think customer obsession, what does that mean to you? Sure, sure. It's a really, really simple notion, which is, you know, the user is at the center of everything that we do. 
right? They have to be, or we simply couldn't be successful, right? In any organization, this, this range true in any organization. And what customer obsession means to me is putting the user of your product or users, you know, and there, there's many cases where there's multiple folks at the center of how you organize all the activities in a company, right? And there's this quote that I absolutely love by a French writer, uh, Exuberet, which says, you know, if you want to build a ship, don't divide the work and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. And customer obsessions, to me, really falls strictly in that realm, which means that, you know, we have a commitment to drive value for the users. And by doing that, you know, we'll see the business results. We'll all be focused on the right things. We'll know the right things to prioritize. And we'll just deliver a superior experience and, and set of products. All right. So that's what customer obsession is to you. Now, why is it important? I know you touched a little bit upon this, but maybe you could kind of relate it to the lack of customer obsession. How do you know whether you're in a customer obsessed business or if you're the right amount of customer obsessed in your role? Yeah. You know, it's a good question. And I wish there was like this magic formula that I can tell you, and then you're going to get the right answer all the time. You know, when you're thinking about what you're researching, when you're thinking about what you're prioritizing and product ideas that you're considering, ask yourself a simple question, right? Which is, who's this for? And oftentimes, you know, and I've read countless number of documents, you know, talking about different product ideas that we're considering, et cetera. If you find that these documents or what you're writing or the story that you're telling is about how the company can benefit, you're clearly at one side of the spectrum here that's not the right side of the spectrum. Now, if you're always only thinking about the users and really thinking about, well, you know, they need this or, you know, they would benefit from having that, but you're not really balancing that with the business side of it, meaning, you know, and this would benefit the business in this way or drive value for the business in this way. Then you've gone to the other side of the spectrum. So I think that somewhere in between where you're still telling that story, where you're still telling the story of the user, but equating it to, you know, outcomes that you want to drive for the business. Like, for example, you know, we want to enter a new market or we want to expand our product set or, you know, whatever that outcome is that's driven by the business or that you want to drive for your business. That's when you know you hit that sweet spot. All right. And so now the other part of this title of today's event is making customer obsession a cross-functional practice. So, and just so everybody knows where we're heading with this, we're going to hear from Dar some very specific examples and stories about not just broadly speaking, making a cross-functional practice, but specifically within different functions. But I am curious, just what goes wrong if you as the product manager don't do enough to make customer obsession a cross-functional practice? Well, I mean, where do I start? Part of it is that you become very unclear of what you're prioritizing and why you're prioritizing. And what happens is you spend an incredible amount of investment and resource, right? Think about every every resource or every person that you put against, you know, making progress on something that you're prioritizing that be that a product feature or what have you. That's all an investment. And making any kind of investment requires a trade-off, meaning you're giving up something else that you could be doing. So you're spending a lot of resource, a lot of time. You're giving up a lot of, you know, potential, you know, revenue, et cetera, only to find out that it didn't work. It wasn't moving the needle. It's not resonating with your users. They don't care. They're not using it. And then where do you find yourself then? You've spent a lot of money. A time has gone by. 
and you haven't really moved the needle for the business in any way. So that's, you know, one of the worst possible outcomes that you can have. All right. So now we've got some context to the conversation and we're going to have an opportunity for audience questions. If anybody has questions, you could also message them to me on LinkedIn now if you'd rather be anonymous and I could ask your question for you. But let's start getting into some specifics at Daily Pay and what you've done in your work and what's worked for you. First, it sounded like, and maybe you could dive a little bit deeper into this, but it sounded like you've got multiple quote unquote customers to be obsessed with, right? You have both the business and the individuals. Did I hear that correctly? That's right. That's right. We work with employers and employees. What's involved in being obsessed when you have to be obsessed over two potentially rival users or uh, constituents? You know, it's funny because you would think that sometimes these different constituents are at odds or their needs are at odds, but you'd be surprised. We spend a lot of time finding that common ground. And to give you a more concrete example, what that means is, you know, employers work with us because they do want to deliver a better experience for their employees. Like they care about the employee experience. They know that if, if employees are happy and they feel more stable or feel like, you know, they can balance their financial lives, that they're going to show up in a better way for the business, which means that they'll show up in a better way for their customers. So employers are fundamentally driven by that. And it's one of the reasons that they engage with us. So there's a lot of overlap in terms of our commitment to making that employee experience great. We may not always agree on the right tactics to get there, but by and large, one of the things that we develop when we've developed these really deep partnerships with employees is that common ground. It's like, look, that commitment is there. Like we believe in that as much as you believe in that. And we're going to work together to deliver that, that great experience. So you'd be surprised, but we do find enough common ground there that there isn't so much tension that we're being pulled in many different directions. We're more pulled in different directions by just wanting to get a lot done, right? Like every other organization, it's like, wow, look at all the stuff that we can get done. So the tension is more around making those prioritization decisions, which again, having that insight into what users value is instrumental in making those decisions. All right. So now we're going to talk about the different functions that you're able to make customer obsession across functional practice within. I'd like to start with engineering. First, what does engineering do that helps you as a product leader be customer obsessed? How are they, quote unquote, playing along? And two, what are the motivations for them to do that and who set that up? Is that your role or is there somebody else who helped make engineering customer obsessed? That's kind of a loaded question, big question, but if you could tackle it how best you can. Wow, Jeff, you really went for the hard one right away, didn't you? No, no, no. So I want to flip this on its head a little bit because, we, you know, we will go into individual groups and how we motivate them and kind of like the tools or the, the techniques or whatever it is that we use to motivate them. But I have to say, like, the commitment to the digital experience of our users isn't really one person or one team's role. And I understand why it's convenient to think about it that way, because, you know, companies are organized, you know, by functional areas and and people are doing their respective things. But it's not that we single out, you know, different groups that impact the user experience in one way or another. It's like we make the user experience a central thing and then we align folks around that. So let's talk a little bit about engineering. So engineers are not order takers and they shouldn't be. They have to be as bought into the why you're doing something and the importance of what you're doing as much as anyone else, because there's nothing more demoralizing than just like having a Jira ticket. And then you're sitting there coding and you're like, I have no idea where we're doing this, or I don't see the bigger picture, or I'm not convinced of the user story. 
So there's a lot of overlap between what product does, especially when it relates to engineers and really anyone. Product managers are storytellers. They're the ones responsible, not for saying like, hey, you know, my boss asked me to to build this thing and we're going to build this thing. No, no, no. They have to bring the need to life. Like Jeff, hey, Jeff is a parent. He has two kids. You know, he's working this hourly job. You know, he's on his way to work, but he realizes that something came up because, you know, his kid didn't tell him that, you know, they need to buy cupcakes for the school, whatever, whatever. Anyway, the story goes on and on. Like you can create a story around our users and any that takes any any flavor. And once you, you know, share that with engineers, well, now they're connected to the story of your users. So for everything that we do, it can't just be, hey, you know, here's a Jira ticket or here's some requirements And we're talking about like, you know, we need to create a database field that does X, Y, and Z. Like nobody's going to, nobody's going to find meaning and purpose in that, but they are going to find meaning and purpose in helping Jeff save the day on the way to school to buy cupcakes for his kid's party. They don't connect to Jira stories. They don't connect to acceptance criteria or requirements. They really connect to the story of the users. And it's really, really critical that you tell that story and then you leverage whatever it is that you can be that you know, user research that you do, or, you know, we use full story a lot, you know, so full story sessions, or maybe it's, you know, we use also unit Q a lot. So it's like, you know, unit Q reviews and things of that nature. All of these things help you as a product person to tell the story to the engineer, but they're not going to connect if you're just giving them like a Jira ticket. So tell me a little bit about marketing and how that's probably got to be one of the easier cross function or easier functions to convince to be customer obsessed. Am I uh, correct in that assessment or is that kind of that kind of question almost fly contrary to what you were saying? No, no, not at all. And then, you know, they become great partners to you in, in the product space in terms of defining like the voice of the customer. You know, we work very closely with our marketing colleagues to research customers, but in, in a different way. So we have, you know, both product research and then we work very closely with marketing research to just piece these things together. And remember, it's like it, you're never going to learn about users entirely via one source. Like just you sometimes it's almost like a tapestry, right? Like you have to piece all these things together. But an interesting story, and we just to get very tactical, you know, we did this, and, and I'll do anything to bring people closer to the customer, but you know, we would do on the product team a weekly support call listening session, right? And it was mandatory, and which I understand that that seems a little draconian, but there was a purpose to it. So we would listen to calls and just really try to connect to users. And what happened is our, our colleagues over in marketing caught wind of what we're doing. They're like, no, no, we want in on this. You know, we also want to understand, you know, what language resonates. Like, how are people referring to, you know, certain things that we do in our app? You know, is that something that can inform how we position our product uh, externally? So then we ended up expand, you know, inviting them and the party became bigger. And, you know, we started collaborating more on things like language, on things like positioning. So it's a really critical partnership. An obvious one, Jeff, to your point, but still important. And let's just keep going down the list if that's all right with you. And then we're going to open up to audience questions. So again, if anybody has a question for Dar, you could send them to me in messages or you'll be able to raise your hand and chat any moment now. Raise your hand here and talk live. But first, support. Talk a little bit about some examples of customer obsession from your support function. Well, the support folks are always on the front lines. And, you know, it's funny because they always they always hope that somebody's listening to them. You know, it's like, hey, I heard this or I'm hearing this. And wouldn't it be easier if if we could do, you know, this for our customers, et cetera. So they're always on the on the front lines and they want to understand that somebody's actually listening, that somebody's invested in the user experience as much as they are. 
But, you know, this came up in recent conversations. You know, we worked very closely with our partners in, in Full Story. And this came up in, well, how are you using Full Story to make your, your support team more effective? And I'll tell you, we started to open up a lot of the replays to our support team. Now, imagine that you're calling, and we've all done this, right? Like we've called support for, you know, a, a product or a service that, that we're interacting with. And they're asking like all sorts of questions. And they're asking questions, right, to diagnose the issue. They weren't there. They don't know what we clicked on. They don't know what we saw. They don't necessarily know the error message that popped up or and we don't know how to articulate what we're doing wrong because in our eyes, we don't know what we're doing wrong, right, as the user. So by aligning and just knowing that we want to deliver the great, a really great experience to users and opening up tools like Full Story, well, all of a sudden they could see exactly how users are interacting with the product and what went wrong. So it's just made it so much better to diagnose. And then the person on the other end isn't sitting there thinking, well, this person just doesn't get me. Like, you <laughs> You know, we've all had it. Our blood pressure has all gone up when somebody's, you know, a support person can't help us. So we try to minimize that. And having that, again, customer obsession and then the tooling and the commitment to do it helps us, you know, deliver more faster and more effectively for the end user. Are there any specific tools or frameworks or processes that you found particularly helpful that you'd recommend people consider as it relates to really tightening that feedback loop without getting overwhelmed by, you know, what customers are saying to support? Yeah, no, there's a few. There's a few that I would say. And, you know, we've invested a lot in digital observability and digital experience intelligence, which are fancy words for saying, you know, we almost create this connected ecosystem of different tools that give us different insights. Like I said, like stitch together this story. So I'll, I'll share two or three of them. You know, the primary tool that we use is a replay tool, which is, you know, full story. You know, full story allows us to look at the user experience, understand what they're going through, create these journeys, understand like where there's friction, et cetera. And then we use a tool also called UniQ. Now, what UniQ does is really interesting because it looks at both our support system, we use Zendesk, and external sources like App Store reviews and Reddit and, you know, all these external sources. And it brings all that together and tells us, it does the hard work, right? Like it does the work that we were doing previously manually, which is like some poor soul's job was to go to all these sites and try to see like, hey, what are the trends and what are we observing? And it brings us all to the surface. And then we can marry the two things and know exactly, well, like, hey, look, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing a trend in reviews around topic X, right? Like maybe somebody was having an issue logging in. Oh, okay. Well, I wonder why that is. Great. And now we piece that together with Full Story and we can actually see the experiences that led to that bad review. And then immediately we have a very clear roadmap and root cause that we can then feed into our engineering organization and prioritize because we can, these tools also let us size the issue. And then we feed that into, you know, the engineering queue and then we can fix it. And then, you know, you have almost this like really, really tight loop that's constantly helping to smooth out some of the friction that we see in the user experience. All right. So that sounds super cool. And my question is, you know, you've got these different groups that have their different objectives. Who was responsible for saying, hey, let me invest the time into full story. Let me help customer service train them if you need to or customer support. Like who got that forward? Like what's the role within an organization that's necessary or in this particular case was able to kind of push different groups to collaborate in a way that benefits the whole organization? 
Yeah, yeah. And there isn't like one person's role that time and time again, like the job description is, you know, go do this, you know, but by the same token, there's a lot of different functions within a company that, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Right. So we were very, very fortunate in hiring, you know, my colleague Lars, who wrote a book on digital experience, intelligence and insights. And he's actually an observability expert, meaning he's the person who knows how to piece all these different systems together to tell the user story. But I'll tell you, you know, even before he joined our company, and by the way, this isn't a common role, right? So if you go out and you start like doing searches to try to hire folks like this, it's a, it's a little bit difficult. But even before he joined the company, you know, you, you have to have a, like either product leaders or support leaders or marketing leaders who understand the value of observability in the way that I'm describing it and are willing to champion it forward. It's not always easy. I don't want to sugarcoat it and say, hey, we just snapped our fingers and look at how awesome this was. Like it did take work. It did take investment. We had to take, you know, baby steps, but that's okay. Like that's okay. Taking those baby steps will still um, lead you in the right direction more so than not doing anything. All right. And then sorry to keep diving into the weeds of this customer obsession becoming a cross-functional practice. Customer support, their leadership, I'd imagine, is almost at cross-purposes because if they do a good job of helping you or helping the product teams, they become irrelevant because then there's less need for customer support. So what is the story that, or how do you overcome that? Or is that actually an issue in practice of that misaligned incentives? Yeah, look, I mean, practically speaking, you're always going to need support. We're humans and, you know, there are certain things or certain issues where you just, you need to talk to a human, you, you need that that confirmation. So we're always going to need support, but you have to look at the support organization and ask, well, what are you measuring and what are you trying to drive? And, you know, with our uh, organization, it's not necessarily, hey, you know, continue to be needed. On the contrary, we're very open and honest around what we're trying to drive. And we know that if we do our jobs well, then there won't be a need for folks to call support. So we, our metrics are aligned around driving down the need for support, right? And, you know, some of those metrics could be like, we use certain ratios and I, I won't go into details here for proprietary reasons, but we use certain ratios where we measure the support volume needed, depending on certain actions and activities and, and volumes within our product. And then we work together, believe it or not, you know, I know that sounds like it's at odds, but we work together to bring to actively bring those numbers down. All right. Thanks for sharing. You know, you just never know what detail somebody's going to hook onto and want to go deeper into. That was one for me. But now it's time for the audience. If they have any questions that they'd like to go deeper into, you could again message me on LinkedIn or raise your hand and we'd love to have you up on stage. Or if you have experience making customer obsession a cross-functional practice and want to share your expertise, also raise your hand, hop up on stage. We'd love to have you. So coming up in the second half hour of this conversation, we still have to talk about operations, uh, security and fraud, and then some general tips for success as it relates to customer obsession. But first, I'll just do a quick interlude. The Product Management Center here at the University of Washington, we are obsessed with building a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. And our user, so to speak, is the whole world. We're here to support anybody in their product management journey. And one such way we're supporting people is this podcast. And another, we have launching a brand new 
online inclusive product management certificate program where you could learn to drive success through inclusive stakeholder management and developing inclusive products. So if you're interested in that, follow me on LinkedIn. Program starts in February, so just next month. So anyway, I see some claps, so thank you. I'll leave you anonymous, but thank you, Tracy. All right, so I have a question from our Slack channel, uh, the Product Management Center Slack channel. What is unique about customer obsession, and when did this trend start? So some of that we touched upon a little bit, but what is unique about it, customer obsession, and, and when did this trend start? Any thoughts on that, Dar? Yeah, you know, I'd argue that it's not a trend. I'd argue that it's been around for a long time and it's essential to any product organization or any organization that's successful and that, you know, gets a lot of uh, loyalty and accolades from their users. We've just given it a name, right? So it's not like, you know, customer obsession was founded in 2017 by, so like, it doesn't work that way. You know, companies exist in many respects, to serve a purpose, right? To drive a value the, there because there's a job to be done in someone's life, right? And they're just figuring out how to do that in the most effective way. So the user's always been at the center. Where this is different is in how organizations align around, you know, the user need and the user journey. And more and more organizations are starting to see the value of it. And, and you know, they're starting to, you know, make this level of insight, this connection with the user, with solving the need more at the forefront, right? So again, I just, I don't think it's a new trend necessarily. I think it's always been there. It's just that we're talking about it a little more and we're making it more practical. I'll just add, you know, it's a kind of, you know, when you think about it, it's a really like high level concept, right? It's out there. It's like up, up in the clouds. And which means that it for a long time may have seemed like it's not attainable, Right. It's very lofty. It's very like, hey, that's all well and good, but I have my job to do today. Whereas the more we talk about it, the more that we just expose practices and things big and small that companies are doing and companies like what we're doing at Daily Pay, the more we expose that, the more tangible it becomes. And the more we realize that it doesn't have to be this lofty, theoretical, unattainable thing. It could just be how we work. All right. Thank you. Hopefully that answered the question. And if anybody else has a question here in the audience, feel free to raise your hand. We'd love to have you on stage, have your voice be heard in this podcast. But I've got another question from somebody who's also shy and wants it written. And also this one is more about you, Dar. So Dar has had a wide range of experiences. What about an organization has helped or inhibited her ability to be customer obsessed? Oh, man, that's a good question. Because, you know, I've worked at a number of different organizations and, you know, all of them with a different, you know, user set and different product. I think something and I'll talk about daily pain in particular, you know, something that really sets us apart and really makes it so that we can collectively commit to doing this as an organization is that we are really mission driven. Now, a lot of companies will tell you that we're mission driven, but we we live in <laughs> we live by this mission to you know, change pay for good. We live to give people choice and control over their pay. And we all believe that to the core and it's what motivates us and what drives us. So I think that when you have a common mission and that you explicitly state it, right? Like sometimes we assume that just because it's in some of our marketing materials or what have you, that we believe it and you don't talk about it enough, like you're not explicit my team will tell you, and I kind of laugh about this a little bit because I always say I hate assumptions. I really do. Like if you assume that somebody's doing this, thinking that, 
et cetera, you're probably wrong. So be very explicit and state it very explicitly in many conversations and, you know, begin meetings with it or just reinforce it. I think that those are the kinds of things that help to set organizations apart and kind of create this cultural component that opens the way for you to have the conversation about how are we going to align around the user? What are we going to do? What steps are we going to take? What tools are we going to use? You know, what outcomes are we going to drive? You know, I've only been doing this for two years and here I still click mute. I wonder whether you heard what I didn't want you to hear and not hearing what I did. But anyway, thank you, Dar. Tracy, this is being recorded and put out as the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast. We'd love to have your voice in it. We'll keep your last name anonymous, but you're free to reveal it if you'd like. What would you like to share or ask? Okay, well, thank you both. This is super informative, and I love what you're saying about the cross-functional practice. And I wonder what your advice would be in the early stages of a startup when you're trying to get these cross-functional groups who are all on their own private mission because they have to get their piece done to see it from the customer side and to really embrace that. Yeah, Tracy, thanks for asking the question. And and I've worked at these small organizations, right, at these small startups. And, you know, it's funny because when you work at uh, some of these smaller startups, by necessity, you're wearing a lot of hats, right? And those hats aren't always about the user. Sometimes it's just like, oh, crap, we don't have a practice or process for, you know, X, Y, and Z. We better jump on that right away. Or, you know, you have a strategic client who's saying, you know, they want whatever it is that they're requesting and you have to jump on that, right? So, so you're constantly being pulled in a number of different directions. So I appreciate what you're saying that, you know, people might be motivated by different objectives, but Here's the thing. It's just as important in small organizations or startups as it is in bigger organizations. It's a little bit harder to do in bigger organizations, believe it or not. But in a smaller organization, there are fewer places to hide, right? Like you have to be very explicit about, regardless of which hat you happen to be wearing right now, you have to be very explicit about, well, you know, what outcome are we trying to drive? If it's just, you know, to set up a policy, so we're not like running around, you know, with our hair on fire. Okay, well, be explicit about that, but understand that you're doing that as a response, not necessarily, you know, because that's the user need. So wherever you can have, like some folks tell me, well, how do you get really, you know, tactical about this? I'm like, all right, if you do nothing else, just make sure you have a very, very clear problem statement when you are bringing people together. Like, don't assume that people know that. So a problem statement might be, You know, users are not able to log into our app because of X, Y, and Z. Well, can you take that problem statement and bring together folks to solve that statement so it becomes less about their individual objectives and, and, you know, what, you know, their boss told them they need to do or, you know, whatever's driving that and make it more about that problem statement. So it's a little bit easier to do in a smaller organization. At bigger organizations, it takes a little more legwork. And then, of course, you invite one person and 12 people show up. So it's a little bit harder to, to, to manage, but Tracy, I would, you know, recommend that get real clear on that problem statement and align people around that. And usually you'll find that they start to open their minds about what motivates them. And it could be a user problem, right? Like people are natural problem solvers, like lean into that, like use that to your advantage in this case. Thank you very much. Yeah, very insightful. I appreciate it. Thank you, Doc. And Tracy, did you have any follow-up questions or you're all set? I think that gives me something to think about for sure. Thank you. I appreciate it.
Awesome. Thanks for joining us on stage, Tracy. If anybody else, now that Tracy's broken the ice, anybody else is welcome to join us. And I have another question from online from somebody not as bold as Tracy. So if anybody else wants to join us on stage, please do. If you want to send me a message, go ahead. Dar, this question is about in the job search process, if you're looking for a new job, what are some indicators that you're going to land yourself in a customer-obsessed company? I'm paraphrasing it, but so what are some indicators that the company is customer obsessed and that what could you look for in that interview process or what could you ask? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I'll tell you, I'll I'll flip this one a little bit and I'll tell you, like I always ask three questions to screen anyone to come into the product. It's number one is I ask, how do you learn about your customers? Like, what are the things that you do to really understand them? You know, not at the surface level, but at a deeper level. The second thing I ask about is how do you prioritize? In other words, how do you make decisions, right? And and the thing I'm looking for there is, you know, if the user need is in any way, shape or form, and by the way, it's not just a user need. It's like, you know, the data that you learn about the user need or the research that you do, like all these things. How does that influence decision making? And then I talk about execution. Now, the reason I share that perspective and then I'll turn it around is these are the questions you could be asking, too. Right. In your interview process, you know, talk about like, well, how do you learn about your customers? What are the ongoing practices that you have? Who's involved in that? And what are you learning as part of it? Give me an example of the last time you learned something about a user, you know, not you, but, you know, somebody else in the organization. Who was that? And how did you introduce that into your decision making or your design or your, you know, prioritization? You know, you can ask probing questions like that and start to uncover how committed they are to this, right? And if they're not necessarily, or you're not feeling like, well, hey, that's as much as I want to see, because remember, like, you got to be reasonable too, then, you know, position yourself on how you can be that person to get that done. But the probing questions and asking about their practices without saying, hey, are you customer obsessed? Like, don't go in there and do that. Don't don't ask that during an interview. You're going to get some, maybe some weird looks, you know, maybe some weird answers, but definitely probe about you know, what role the user plays, like who aligns around the user journey, you know, are different organizations or functional areas, you know, picking up different pieces of it, or, you know, how do you come together? These are all reasonable things to ask during the interview process. All right. Thank you, Dar. And hopefully that answers the question to our person submitting that by writing. If anybody else wants to raise their hand, we'll welcome you on stage in these last 15 minutes. But I think it's time for us to resume what I had promised we would talk about which is operations and security and fraud. I think this is so cool how you are setting up systems to get that information quickly. Tell us a little bit more about, I guess, let's focus. Let's start with operations. How are you working with the operations functions to maintain customer obsession? I have a general saying, which is you can't fix what you can't see and you can't prioritize what you can't measure. And when it comes to an organization like operations, it's that's, I mean, more true than ever. And they care a lot about customer friction because they're always looking for ways to create efficiencies in our business. And that's one one thing that they worry about. I mean, operations is pretty, pretty broad. So I'll give you a sense of where this comes into play. So, you know, we have systems in place that I mentioned earlier, like Unit Q that, you know, help us to kind of keep our finger on the pulse in terms of, you know, trends that we're seeing both internally. When I say internally, I mean through our support system like, like Zendesk or externally. And, you know, we work very closely with operations to set up alerts and 
alerts that trigger either customer friction or, you know, operational opportunities that they wouldn't, you know, know otherwise. And then, you know, we work very closely with them to figure out, you know, what are the right escalation paths and, you know, how do we take this customer feedback that we're getting through all these channels and and think about like, how do we operationalize in the business. So for example, if there's an underlying system, you know, the way our product works is that we're integrated with, you know, payroll and timekeeping systems. Well, if those processes are not working well for, you know, whatever reason, or, you know, there's some friction there, you know, it shows up in feedback, it shows up in reviews, it shows up in a number of different areas. So the operations teams leverage that to create new processes for making those operational uh, functions, you know, better, right? So they figured out a way, you know, to take this, all these inputs that we're seeing from the users and, you know, turning that into just better, you know, better operational practices. All right. Now I want to talk about security and fraud. And I know that's not relevant to everybody's business, but it seems sadly uh, more and more businesses have to have a security and fraud function. Curious how you interface with them and what you've done or what's been done to help get the best customer obsession from that function. Most companies deal with this in one way or another, and it's obviously not something that, you know, we want to introduce into any business, but, you know, there's this age old tension between you know, product and user experience and security practices, right? Like if we ran a fully, you know, fully, fully secure, you know, lock practice that never saw any risk at all, you know, we would have arguably maybe not the best user experience, right? Or if we had like the best user experience ever and we didn't take certain measures to protect our users, you know, then that wouldn't be a good outcome either. So there's this natural tension that happens. So we really acknowledge the tension. We're very open about it, but we work together to commit to finding that balance. But when we see, when we see potential issues come up, you know, obviously, you know, we we always want to give our users the benefit of the doubt, but we have a great responsibility to protect our users. We have a financial product, so we don't mess around, right? We are very adamant about protecting our users. So we leverage a lot of the tools that we have, you know, like full story to quickly assess, you know, is something, you know, real fraud, not real fraud. You know, can we close that gap? Can we, you know, find ways of, you know, finding that balance with our our partners between, again, like that security and, and user experience and, you know, create customer goals around that. You know, it was one of the things that actually led us to identify a number of different tools that are very common in the security space that kind of work behind the scenes to mitigate and help drive like the highest level of security with minimal impact on the user experience. So it's really it's really kind of funny, Jeff, because you know you're asking about all these groups that typically may introduce tension to product teams. It's like, yeah, 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 it's great that you want to prioritize that. But really no, I got this other thing I need to do or you know, you're not listening to my priorities. We found a way to turn that tension turn that tension into something actually very healthy for our company and really align around some common common outcomes that we want to drive. So it's been a really fun experience, a really unique experience in many ways and something that, you know, it makes the level of collaboration a lot higher. I want to just double click on this uh, generally, how you're resolving the, the tension and, and pushing it uh, towards a common direction. Any resources or frameworks that you found particularly helpful, whether that's software packages or 
books or blog posts or anything that's been particularly helpful in making customer obsession just a cross-functional practice? Yeah. So one thing that we do that I talk a lot about isn't a book. It's not a framework. It's not any of those things. But it started with what I shared earlier about us getting together to listen to customer calls, right? And it's become a company-wide practice. We call it Coffee with Customers. And every part of the organization, you know, we literally have it started out like, you know, 10 people and now it's like hundreds of people who come together every other week to listen to customer calls. And then what we introduce in that is not only do we listen to the calls, we show the research, you know, that, that we have around a particular topic. And then we show, you know, reviews that we found around this particular topic. And then we play back, you know, the digital, you know, experience uh, replays that we get from Full Story. We bring all these different pieces together and it's a practice to kind of like make the experience, you know, a 360 uh, degrees. But since you asked me about books, I get asked this question a lot. Like, what books do you read? What blogs? What, you know, where do I turn to? So I'm always, I'm very curious. I'm always reading and I'm always looking at resources. But I'll tell you what I'm reading right now, which I absolutely love. It's a great, 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 great resource for folks who want to learn a little bit more about this. And it doesn't talk necessarily about customer obsession, but there's a foundation of that in the book, which is the product-led organization by Todd Olson. Todd is the founder of Pendo. Pendo, by the way, is another tool that we use that we are um, big fans of. And there's a lot of great, uh, there's a lot of great insight in this book about how to organize a company around this notion of the user experience and user value. That's a new one. I don't think we've heard that mentioned on this podcast. So thank you for sharing that and hope that's helpful to the audience. We're at time here. I want to give a chance first to say thank you and then a chance for concluding thoughts. Anything bullet point takeaways or last overall stories or just what do you want to leave the audience with? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. You know, I wish that there was a product management center when uh, earlier in my career. Just I love what what you all are doing. The thing that I'll leave folks with here is, you know, there's no one right answer. There's no one right way. You know, don't look to like a process or, you know, one particular framework to solve this for you. It has to begin kind of, you know, inside of you, right? It has to begin with a strong degree of curiosity about the users that you build for. You know, let, we have to lead with a lot of humility here because we don't know as much about the users as they know about themselves, but our job is really to understand them and to see how we can play a role in driving value in their lives. But, you know, don't get discouraged, like keep trying. Sometimes it's like that baby step is the one that makes all the difference. So I definitely encourage people to just keep at it, get creative and just continue at it because it's worth it. And it, it just makes our jobs it definitely makes me want to get up every morning and I'm energized and ready to make a difference. All right, Dar, thank you so much for joining us today and making a difference by sharing some valuable stories and guidance for product managers of, of all generations to learn from you. So appreciate that and appreciate everybody who asked a question and who joined us live. The live is where we get the energy and then the downloads is where we see the broad impact of uh, bringing uh, some of the best and brightest minds in product management to everyone. So we're grateful for all of you and we'll see you next week. We'll see everybody next week. We're going to be discussing product management for internal tools. So building internal tools. And then, yeah, just want to remind everybody that we're a resource. We're customer obsessed. We want to build a more diverse, inclusive, and importantly, skilled product management community. And inclusion in product management is a path to the traditional success metric that you've seen product managers try to achieve. And so we've got a lot of programming along that. And 
uh, one of which is the Inclusive Product Management Certificate Program. But we also have an Inclusive Product Management Summit, which is going to be live in person here in Seattle, uh, May 11th to 13th. So mark your calendar, make your plans to come to visit us here in Seattle, and, and we'll get registration info posted soon. So thank you all for listening and have a wonderful day. <laughs>